what's the point? Put on your fedora and listen to the Uncut Gems podcast, a weekly show where we talk about movies nobody else wants to talk about. This is episode number 62. My name's Jakub. And my name's Nick. And today, again, we're joined by a good old buddy, good old buddy Randy. Randy Burrows is in the house. How are you doing? Good. I'm doing great. This is awesome. awesome. How are you guys? <laughs> Surviving. Uh, you ready for some De Palma? Mm. Yep. And noir chats. <laughs> yeah, so you know, you probably know like the Palm March continues. Four decades of the Palm March is closing today because we're not going to go into the uh, 2010s. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. One day, uh, anyway. So the Palm March continues and closes today. We're talking. We're we're talking about the Black Dahlia. Uh, and so, just a quick reminder: we talked about Snake Eyes, we talked about the Phantom of the Paradise, and we talked about Dress to Kill. So you can go and listen to these conversations as well. And on top of that, you know, feel free to uh, subscribe to our Patreon to, uh, to, uh, to listen to us talk about Blowout, which was a tie-in episode that we did a few weeks back. And also we can, you'll, you'll be able to find the Dario Argento mini retrospective we did as well that ties into this because, you know, Brandon Palmer is a bit of an American Jallo filmmaker. It's just, it's anyway, and then also by the time you're listening to this, the, uh, March episode of um, the David Lynch marathon should be up and 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 operational where we talked about Dune. So look out for that. Uh, it was a great discussion we we had. So that was it's going to be amazing. And then might as well because this technically this comes out on the first day of April, I think first of April, prima prelis. Um, might as well just give you a bit of a lowdown of. I mean, we don't. Nicola, we don't have a theme for for this month, like a solid theme. Yeah, it's it's all a bit of a haphazard sort of situation, right? Yeah, it's a mix and match. <laughs> let's say it's a bit of a mix mix and match situation. Although there is one sort of overarching theme that kind of defines what, what we're going to be doing on our Patreon episodes, because on the 29th of April there is the anniversary of Alfred Hitchcock's passing, so we will be doing an episode about a Hitchcock film that's a little bit on of the beaten track, and then to let's just say. Pair it up with that. We'll we'll, we'll talk about Rear Window on uh, as a as a bonus tie-in, and then we'll also do a retrospective that's tied into that as well. But I'm gonna leave it at that for now. Uh, yeah. So go go ahead and subscribe uncut well, to our Patreon Patreon.com/slash/uncutgemspod. Three bucks a month will give you access to all the all, all those good podcasts that we record on a weekly basis now almost. With Nicolo and a and a bunch of assorted guests who keep coming and going, and some some come and stay like Randy, and some come and go and never show up again. I don't know why. <laughs> anyway, um, what was I supposed to say? Yeah, I think I mentioned everything I wanted to mention. So let's just dig into this. Let's just you know uh, stop procrastinating, stop you know dilly dallying about this, and then let's just dig into the meat and potatoes of today's conversation, which is Brand De Palma's 2006 film titled The Black Dahlia. Look, I didn't know you were a boxer. Daddy's heard of you and he insists you stay for dinner. 
I told him we met at that art exhibit at Stanley Rose's bookshop, so if you have to bump everybody for my alibi, be subtle. Who's this? Balto. The paper is the LA Times for August 1st, 1926. Balto was bringing in the paper when Daddy found out he made his first million. He wanted to consecrate the moment, so he shot him. Here we go. Directed by Brian De Palma, The Black Dahlia stars Josh Hartnett, Aaron Eckhart, Scarlett Johansson, Hilary Swank, and a few other people in a period noir about two... Is it a neo-noir? I think, okay, well, well, I'm going to leave it up for now. <laughs> just, I, I was, I was, look, I was look, thinking about this. Just, is it a neo-noir? Is it a noir? I don't know. Anyway, so it's a new noir film-ish about two detectives, Bucky Blyhart, that's Hartnett, and Lee, and Lee Blanchard, that's Eckhart, who are paired together to do a charity boxing match and eventually begin working together as well. So Lee introduces Bucky to his girlfriend, Kay, that's Johansson, whose past is rather murky in its own right, and one day... The two detectives, while doing a stakeout, become entangled in a high-profile murder case as a dismembered body of a woman is found. And they, as they follow the rabbit down the rabbit hole, the two detectives embark on a perilous journey into the criminal underbelly of Hollywood. I'm just going to leave it at that. So, the film itself was written by Josh Friedman, who before this did War of, War of the Worlds for Spielberg, and also has story credits on Andrew Davis' um, Chain Reaction, and recently on terminator dark fate he also wrote avatar 2 which is a film that i don't know maybe we'll see in this this side of this decade (laughs) i don't know anyway the story isn't original as it is adapted from a 1987 book by james elroy um and also it's i think it's the first part of a of of the so-called la quartet which also includes who the big nowhere la confidential and white jazz so yeah la confidential probably you you may be maybe familiar with anyway so the idea uh to adapt this this book goes back to the 1980s but, but only after la confidential made landing the conversations became serious and at some point david fincher was attached thanks to the clout he got after seven but eventually dropped out to make zodiac interestingly i think he co-authored a graphic novel based on some version of the script or the book itself or i don't know storyboards i might as well get into it at some point if, if some people have some info i don't know josh friedman was hired to write the script and at, at one point the film was supposed to include a cameo appearance from guy pierce and russell crowe if so if you know uh, your la confidential these are the two main characters in the film uh, but this idea was eventually abandoned so michael douglas johnny depp gabriel byrne and billy crudup were, were in the running for the role that went to uh, um, aaron eckhart and then paul walker Stephen dorf and chris o'donnell were shortlisted for bucky's role that went to josh hartnett and eventually while well, fincher was still involved hartnett and mark Wahlberg were involved but Wahlberg left to make the italian job and fincher eventually left because the producer did not like the idea of of this of him making a three-hour black and white film and actually pushing to make this a five-hour mini miniseries instead so he left uh so brian de palma was brought on board and uh, so he was essentially just brought i think from europe <laughs> to, to do this uh so because he made it made his move away from hollywood after um mission to mars which is something i think we talked about and this was over a year ago but i think we talked about a little bit on on the first episode of the show so if you you know if you want you can um dive deep into the dumpster of <laughs> uncle jim's podcast and fish out the first episode which which just i don't know i i, I dread listening uh, anyway so he made the 
critically panned femme fatale in between the two films and it was brought on, brought on board turned in a th- over a three hour long cut of the film to, the, to which the producer said absolutely no and they had him remove almost a, an hour and a half of, of, of footage but before that he showed the cut to James Elroy who wrote a massively praising essay about how he loved the film and then he, when he saw the film he was just like I don't know what happened <laughs> uh, so okay anyway so the film bombed at the box office which because it was accompanied by bad reviews critics thought the filmmakers captured the kind of atmosphere and tone of the 40s noir if you if you read read into their reviews but had lots to say about performances not being up to snuff so some called the movie a flattened goose that is over rich and unsatisfying and then though the movie was nominated for one Oscar for cinematography by uh, Vilmos Zygmunt, I think that's his name is. And then he 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 has been a frequent collaborator with uh, De Palma as well. So now Black the Black Dahlia is kind of as a result had disappeared has disappeared from the zeitgeist together with De Palma, who also departed Hollywood forever after that. Which brings us to here and now. So what do we think about the Black the, the Black Dahlia? So where do you stand on this? How about how about we start with a good buddy Randy? The tradition dictates. Randy begins our deliberations. What do you think about the Black Dahlia? This was my first watch of the Black Dahlia. It's one that I had not seen before. Um, and over the course of the last week, I watched it a couple times. Um, in our chats about De Palma, it's sort of come up this idea that De Palma has directed two types of films, ones that are very personal, that he sort of developed from scratch, from his own ideas and maybe even his own life. And then he walks into a production that's already in progress you know maybe he walks in late or he walks in early um, but he walks into something where the wheels are already turning and that's often been a genre piece for him and that's what this is this is certainly the latter this is much less personal to uh, De Palma but he sort of swoops in with you know a lot of background that connects well and should work well with this uh, this piece with sort of a, a film noir. Um, but this is a very personal piece for Elroy. So going back through Friedman and back to the source material, uh, this exudes Elroy's life and interests. And that's the, the personal piece that, that I, I get out of this. So there was the quartet of books. Um, you mentioned the uh, the other one that was made into that lovely French film in 1997, La Confidentielle. Um, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Waited all week for that. <laughs> I thought you just, like, made it into this, like the, f- 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 film, the French film Le Don de la Mer, known also as Joss. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, so LA Confidential. Uh, but LA Confidential was the third book from what I understand in the quartet, but I believe it was the it was the first film made and it and when it became a hit, um I, I think then Elroy's works were explored uh, a bit further and uh that's when Friedman was hired. I think he was hired in ninety seven actually. So right around the time that uh LA Confidential was released and and having some uh, success with the end of year uh, box office and awards hype that season. So Fry- Friedman jumped in and it took, gosh, a good old time to to get this ready. But this has all kinds of elements from Elroy's life. And what I found most interestingly was Elroy, he, 
uh, he when he grew up and he was 10 years old, his mom was killed and it was an unsolved case. Uh, so she was murdered in a date rape scenario. And he uh, when he was around 11 or so, 11 or 12, so shortly after that, um, he began falling into reading crime novels and watching uh, uh, L.A. Uh, police shows. So he really started eating up that type of environment and that sort of shows up in in his work and i I think in some ways some of the characters in here uh represent elroy himself and i think that uh his mom uh is represented by the black dahlia case which was a real case so it's interesting how this was a real case but it's a completely fictional story so we'll get into it um in terms of my initial reaction and initial response, I find this entirely too dense. In a way, I feel I need a master's to follow this, <laughs> or I need a, some sort of memory enhancement therapy because <laughs> this is dense. And I would actually love to see the the three plus hour version in a way because I, I think we're missing a lot in here that would make it better. But we'll get into these things. I'm curious to see what you guys think. So, <laughs> wow. Oh, this is going to be a conversation, is it not? Nick, tell me. Tell us all. What do you think about the Black Dahlia? Boring. <laughs> Black Dahlia is boring. I don't know what happened here because I watched this movie two years ago for the first time. I gave it like 3.5 out of 5. I enjoyed it. I was into it. I was like, this is a good film. I don't know why people don't like it. And I was rewatching it two days ago. I was like, did I actually watch the right movie? How did I really like that one? Because ah, it pains me to say it, but Black Dahlia just isn't good. And it's dropped almost to the bottom of my Brian De Palma ranking. Above or below Raising Kane, just just to clarify. I want to say, let me just double check. I think I put it right below Raising Kane. Oh dear. Oh. Exactly. No, it's above. No, it has to be below. Raising Kane is good shots, but it is above Fury, Domino, Passion, and Bonfire of the Vanities. Wow! You know, it's so not it's, it's it's in good company. It's not down there <laughs> by its um, its lonesome. Um, Black Dahlia. I I I was familiar with the case very much because I I had a strong true crime uh, era of obsession when I was younger. And it is also part of, among many things, the video game L.A. Noir, which is set in 1940s, published by Rockstar, where you play a detective and you have to do multiple cases. And there's a whole chapter where you have multiple cases that are related directly to the Black Dahlia case. So it's something that I always find fascinating. I've seen different iterations of it. But this film just doesn't work. And I don't know if having an extra hour of content would fix anything because the way that i see this movie is that they don't care about the black dahlia i don't know how elroy's novel works and i would love to read it but i'm watching this and this is trying way too hard to capitalize on the success of something like pearl harbor we need to have the the, uh, love triangle we need to have this small cast of characters and just so much time spent on developing them quote-unquote, because they are just 
blank as it's maddening it's maddening how characterless most of them are especially the female characters like scarlett johansson basically she's she's a mannequin in this film she does nothing and, and Trump was, was he who would probably tell you that he's just a mannequin anyway <laughs> just, you know it, just, it, it wouldn't be too Jack wrong sharp in the house just spiritually just channeling him hi jack <laughs> it wouldn't be wrong honestly hi jack <laughs> but just it's there's so much and i'm i'm i think what made me like it less mm-hmm. this time around is that i just watched well over a dozen brian de palma films in the last month and even in something like domino even in something like femme fatale which i do really like but even some of his lesser films, like A Mission to Mars, like I'm watching it. Snake Eyes, we talked about it last week. I'm watching it and I'm like, you know what? But the craft is there. Problems in the script. Maybe some of the casting isn't the best thing in the world. But the craft is still there. And I can at least enjoy it on a technical level. And this one is flat. There's very little visually um, in terms of music. There's, there's very little that works well. It looks ugly. It looks like it's it's not shot on digital, but just it's probably digitally color graded, and it looks so brown, just like poop brown, <laughs> just <laughs> dirty, disgusting, and not in a good way. It's lacking the sleaze once again. It's a story that was prime for just delving into the underbelly and the seediness of Los Angeles, and there's nothing there. That's just how I feel. There's nothing there. I'm looking at it from the outside, and I go potential in there let me see what's inside it's hollow empty nada (laughs) those are Uh, my opening impressions (laughs) there's there's a line in uh big trouble in little china where kurt russell says it's hollow fuck it (laughs) that's how i feel (laughs) Uh, not in this case (laughs) he punches a hole through the wall uh I'll I'll say this. I thought I had seen this before. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I had seen this before. I was just just living my life, just carelessly thinking that I had seen the Black Dahlia, and then I'm just thinking, nah, it's not that bad. And then I'm watching this, and I'm just like, if I had seen this before, like none of it stayed with me, like zero, nada, zilch, <laughs> bub kiss, <laughs> it's just nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing stayed with me, uh, um, and I'm I'm watching this. I'm just thinking to myself, Christ, I should probably start taking notes because I actively start forgetting what the film's about as it's going. Like it's just passing through me, like you know, like it's it's yeah. I, I'm watching this. It's it's kind of like the experience is like just eating a laxative. Like it's just nothing staying. It's just cleansing my my my, my bowels as it's going through, and all the, the only thing that kind of comes out is just brown stinky water. It's just not very good for for business. I I totally agree that I would say calling it too dense. I think it's it's just being polite um, <laughs> because. Uh, I think we'll get we'll get to it shortly. But like in terms of my opening impressions, I'm I mean I was I was kind of on board with call it the aesthetic of the film. I think I will call it yeah because it kind of it looks like it's I think purposefully sun bleached and it's supposed to kind of look like like make you feel like you're in the fifties or the forties because the LA Confidential takes place in the fifties. Yeah, <laughs> and I I 
you know, I, I like the idea of setting a completely fictitious story in in some kind of a historical reality, like anchoring it just about, like LA Confidential is just about anchored by the fact that there's this guy called Mickey Cohen ruling the roost in LA at the time, so you can kind of sort of position the story in, in the history of the period and uh, in, 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 the, in the region as well. And this is kind of sort of like anchored by the sort of the the, uh, the famously unsolved mystery of the Black Dahlia, right? Because I don't think it, it, this this has been a famously cold case, right? Yes. Uh, yeah, but other than that, I'll say this. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm th- I think to myself like I, I I really want to watch the three three and a half hour cut of this. Like this is like I want to see, like like I want to see the four hour cut of of, of Convoy, right? <laughs> because just just to just to see, not because I want to find find out whether this it's more indulgent or or not, but I feel like there's there's a film that's that could have been, that's been butchered by someone else, almost, and I'd like to see what they butchered. I'll put it that way because the film is just bad. I mean, it's just not. It's not very good. The performances are kind of stale. Like I don't care about any of the characters. Literally nobody I care about in this film. I don't care about anything that happens in there. And as as things are happening, I, I forget the characters' names as as well. I, it's just and then I have to go and rewind. And like it took me three hours to watch it anyway because I had to go and <laughs> rewind back. It's like I have no idea what happened. Why is what? Why is she kissing him? Oh right, okay. Well they don't. But okay, girl. Uh, I said, like, who's this? Oh, that's Hillary. Who's who's this guy? Oh, it's her dad. It's her dad. Okay. And uh, that's this is me. My experience watching this was basically just being uh, like living in the sort of per- perpetual state of, of of thinking that I may may have like early onset dementia. <laughs> that I just like holy shit, I'm forgetting what's happening as it's happening. Yeah. And then yeah. So I feel like there's there are massive problems in the script. I would disagree maybe on the direction angle because I think the craft is there, however much of it is there. Although I feel like this is again sort of like a mission to Mars conversation that there's a there, there's an author with his hands tied behind his back here, uh, trying to insert some kind of personality into a project that's clearly not his. This is what Randy you just said as well that you know like there's a there's a, there are two types of the Palmer films there are films that he just envisions himself and develops from ground up and then there are films he's brought on to fix just for one reason or another and um, Mission to Mars was one of those and then we know we all know how much of a shit show this was even though uh, I don't know I I'm I'm like I I like the <laughs> I like I Mission like to it. Mars it's um, fun. but yeah. This this thing I don't think I can find enough in here to give this a positive review. So it, it this will on par. I mean on on balance it will it will lean towards the negative. I'll put it that way, and that's not good because Brian De Palma is my boy, and I don't like to watch his failures. So yeah. <laughs> so what went wrong? What what's going on in here? there's a lot of things <laughs> just let's take this one by one <laughs> just honestly for me prim- primarily just the script the script is the pro the key problem to me because other Agreed. things yeah you like you can say like i don't know hillary swank she's not good in this film she's a horrible accent fair enough 
But if, if, like, if you're lost in the narrative itself, she cannot ruin an entire movie. And same for like some of the sequences that are a bit too dull, whatever. The script is the problem. It's so uneven. It's so, so uneven. And what's more frustrating is that there are moments of greatness sprinkled throughout. Unsurprisingly, those moments are when the Black Dahlia is about the Black Dahlia and not when it's about Bucky and uh, Kay and Lee. My favorite character, my favorite trio since Star Wars. (laughs) Just so it's, 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 again, I like the actors. See, I, I, I do think um, Josh Hartnett is underrated. I quite like Hartnett, honestly. Even in this film, I think he does a good enough job. But they're so forgettable. I think you hit it when you said you keep forgetting the names. That's how I was <laughs> feeling. I was like, I don't know who they're talking about. And that's the most shocking thing because De Palma is a very visual director. And I've always mm-hmm. defended him for working when he just removes dialogue, removes, like it focuses just on the visuals. And there are so many moments in here where I, where I think, man, there's so much talking and I cannot focus on anything. There's a, we'll get to the ending, but just there's a moment in the ending where there's a big reveal where someone goes on a long tirade where I actually, I, I didn't realize what she was saying. And I had a, a 20 minute conversation with my family because we watched it together. I had it earlier. And they were like, oh, and this happened. And this, I was like, wait, when? I was like, no, she says it. I was like, how, how did I not realize that is what she said? How does this work? <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with, with all of that. Like, this is, it's, there's so much compacted into this. And like you say, so, and I made some notes the second time I went through it. There you are mentions multiple times, right? How yeah, many times did yeah. You watch this before, so. Like two and two and a half. So <laughs> I watched so, it like one point seven times anyway, just in one sitting. Well, yeah. So you've got Junior Nash, Bobby DeWitt, Mickey Coe, and Maury Friedman, Ben Siegel. You've got this Proposition B, which is some uh, article of legislation that was voted on. You've got the whole business of the Warrants Division, and you've got Baxter Fitch. So these are names and things that are going on, and you have about collectively about three minutes of screen time. And some of those people <laughs> you never see, like Ben yes. Siegel, is just mentioned. And I get that within a film noir, you know, you you might have red herrings strewn about, um, things to latch on to. Um, but this here, like Yakibi said it, it's it's in one eye and then through the digestive system and <laughs> out the asshole. Out. Right. <laughs> it's because nothing here has enough gravity to just sort of stay in place. It's just falls in front of your eyes and it's gone. I I I yeah, I, I have a lot of issues with this and I I really struggle at points like figuring out what is going on and i think i have it largely pieced together but good lord i shouldn't have to work this hard especially when i'm Mm. not really enticed by these characters there's nothing really significant about especially the three leads for me to really care and what's weird is i spend the first half hour of the movie with these three characters and i don't care i don't care about the boxing <laughs> i don't want by the way right because <laughs> the, the black dahlia doesn't like that crime doesn't occur until like the 27 minute mark there's the 
there's not until the crane shot pretty much (laughs) the crane shot so you've got a set piece and the reveal (laughs) of the the black dahlia murder sort of in the same weird two minute stretch and that comes almost at the half hour mark and i've spent all this time with these characters and i don't like any of them i don't care about any of them and i'm struggling to follow what's going on with all these names and preposition b and getting promoted and who gives a shit about boxing you know it's just busy and it's it was hard work man it was hard work preparing for this the longest flashback in the history of cinema that you forget it's a flashback <laughs> it's like this, what what are we going what's what's this dissolve? oh yes this is the oh we're going back to the opening okay it was a flashback i mean the f- fun fact is by the way like the scene where you actually see the body of black dahlia the black dahlia the um is it Mar- margaret short elizabeth, elizabeth. short elizabeth short yeah surfacing it the, it's kind of on the back of this sort of stakeout that you're supposed to just see someone and you don't care who it is. And it actually turns out that you should care. <laughs> it comes back in the end as well. I mean, just Christ, really? And Yeah, there's, there are examples of these elegant shots here. Mm. Like that's a gorgeous shot in a way. Yeah. Yet, in a way, thematically, and in terms of the story, it sort of misses the point because mm-hmm. you, sh- you should grasp more of what's going on in the back lot. Like you say, you don't really clue in. It's just sort of an awkward background yeah. moment. I mean, to me, in terms of like the cinematic craft, almost like as you say, I think it almost works to the detriment of the story because you really should pay attention to what's happening. But I think it's kind of like the 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 Palma as a director is just he, he, there are things he wants to do to kind of just indulge a little bit. So the film opens with this massive long take of I can't remember if it's like the Zoot Suit riots or yes or or some something to that effect as a, yeah so there's this massive riot happening on the street and the, and this is how you're introduced to these two characters like the the you know Josh Hart and Aaron Eckhart are police officers and they're just beating the crap out of some sailors right and the scene in isolation again it's like I feel like I'm talking about snake eyes again the scene in isolation <laughs> is interesting yes. it's just it's completely detached from everything and then i'm just wondering it's like why am i not caring about any of this and i think we had this conversation yesterday as we were recording uh, a few bonus episodes uh for 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 our patreon patreon.com slash pod three bucks a month is the place whatever anyway <laughs> um when we were talking about whether you can have a successful story with uninteresting characters or Mm-hmm. whether you can have a like my argument would be that you can have a successful plot if the plot is interesting you could probably follow the plot and not really care about uninteresting characters because it, the MacGuffins alone or the sort of the set pieces alone would probably keep you invested somehow it's not going to be great but at least it's going to be serviceable and this film puts this theory to the test because these characters mean nothing to me <laughs> none of them none of them mean anything to me it's just horrible and I'm I'm just thinking to myself: Is this a f- fault of the screenwriter not paying attention, not pay, not giving too much, uh, well, not giving enough space to these people to breathe, or is this the fault of the star- of the source material which I haven't read? And I not, at this point, I would want to read it. And this is this is where where this uh, this episode of Uncut Gems podcasts becomes a, an episode of Death by Adaptation, kind of sort of by accident. Because it kind of feels like it belongs. This film belongs in a in, in a death by adaptation sort of roster, because I, re- I really want to compare the two. 
and then I'm just thinking to myself, I, I'm not a fast, you know, a fast reader that way. So it's like I wouldn't be able to do this in like a span of a few hours. I remember there's another podcast that I listened to three years ago <clears throat> by Patrick H. Patrick H. Williams, who's very famous on YouTube and kind of Letterbox as well. Um, and he did a whole marathon of of Josh Hartnett's career, entire filmography, and he did actually read. It wasn't very long, was it? <laughs> no, it was like almost over a year, like <laughs> one episode a week. That's a, a good year of episodes, okay. you know. And and he did read The Black Dahlia beforehand, before the episode. And I remember, I don't remember the details, but I remember they said, like, it's a completely different thing. Like the end result and the novel, like the novel is properly a great, like, noir thriller mystery. Mm -hmm. The film is anything but. And that's kind of like, we, we, we talked about this kind of a problem in some of the Argento movies when you have a very 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 limited cast and you are 100% sure that like <laughs> five of the six people in that cast cannot be the killer yeah. there's very of... little of a mystery in <laughs> but, that. but then again the cast in here is like 80 there's 80 people in here or something like that right there's a, there's a lot of like side characters <laughs> that matter nothing like you said right it's like two minutes of screen time like there's there's characters that come on come on screen like in the first five minutes and then they come back again towards the end of the movie that i forgot they were in the movie it's like who's this guy owning the building we've never seen him no we've seen him in the opening oh oh, oh you're right yeah it's uh, whoever it is yeah so it's it's nauseating in that sense but of like proper characters it's very limited and so okay does it work as a mystery no because it's predictable like everything is predictable you mentioned the the set piece with the crane shot where aaron eckhart is like look out they're shooting it just starts shooting and just guns like, down the woman yeah. like an ass, like this... a dog in the street like jesus if he didn't move me I would have died he saved my life he's like where like clearly is the one who shot first and clearly like the way it's shot like you never think for a second that he actually did save his life and that's there's another there's a shot of like ooh, a silhouette is approaching aaron eckhart with a knife i wonder who it is like it's you can clearly tell it's a woman you can clearly and there's only another woman in this room I mean, I mean yeah, you can but is this is this kind of johansson is this hillary swank or is this the drunk mother Who's, by the way, the unsung hero of the film? <laughs> oh yeah, oh we'll get to her. <laughs> but just wait—it's it's not a thrilling thriller. It's not an intriguing mystery. It's not a compelling drama. It's not an exciting romance. It's 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 nothing. It's it's a, it's an interesting uh, side by side comp to *L.A. Confidential*, the film, because I would mm. suggest *L.A. Confidential* is doing the same type of thing it is uh looking into the the same type of networks the you know the the hollywood and uh the media the cops corruption within the cops politics all that stuff is on display in la confidential and la confidential uh, in my view, works and manages all those different elements, even though, you know, you do have these, you know, strands of story going off in different directions. You don't really know where it's going. But what Curtis Hansen's film does very well is that it's anchored in character and the traits of the characters are clear visually right away. So when you see Russell Crowe, you know he's the good cop, but he's sort of not that bright. He's the he's, brute. 
and the mm. muscle. And when you see uh, Kevin Spacey show up, he's the showman. And uh, Guy Pierce, he's sort of the nerd, the goody nerdy two shoes. guy. The goody two-shoes. And he's in it for yeah. politics. You see Danny DeVito show up. He represents the media and sort of the sleazy side of that. It's it's very clear. And it's not necessarily you need a, a full in-depth look at these characters but they all have their little establishing moments and when the story progresses and and you follow a character one direction for a while another character for a while it's coherent because you've seen enough enough of these uh pieces and moving parts and dynamics and relationships that it comes together and you care enough about the characters you're surprised by certain things um and the the mystery when it comes together predictable you might say but it makes sense it's coherent and you care and like i would say elroy's novel it's 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 sort of the same world it's doing the same types of things but it's just not laid out in that opening 30 minutes. What should be setting this stuff up is a complete bust because it's presenting me a bunch of boxing that may look decent, um, but I don't care. And you've got this relationship between cops that I don't care. And frankly, they're, I, I consider Hartnett and Eckhart. I find these fairly blank performances, uh, each of them. So it just fails in what it needs to do. Like I think the opening 15 minutes here are, are pivotal if it's going to be this type of film where it's going to take you down different you know, plot directions and there's going to be mysteries and red herrings. And it doesn't. Like it doesn't set that up in any meaningful way. And to me, you know, the main difference is I actually, you know, I, I finished watching The Black Dahlia and I immediately decided to rewatch LA Confidential just to see and you could say yes i told i'm totally in agreement on this it's just these films are essentially in terms of the narrative they have the same traits as in mm -hmm. they're dense they're the plots are extremely complex even though the actual story in them is supposed to be simple but the difference to me is that what makes la okay well, i think we can agree that that curtis hansen is not on the same let's just say in terms of directorial flair he can't hold the candle to Brian De Palma I think he, that, I think there's no 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 argument there the film like LA Confidential is extremely plain visually speaking it's very plain because it's it almost like knows its place as in like there's a story that we need to tell and there's a lot to it so we kind of need to just make sure that everything works in service of the story and i think with the main sort of distinguishing element what makes this film work apart apart from what you just said that just well that these people have their own sort of anchoring moments i think all these characters they have a sense of progression they have a they have momentum and they have arcs like guy pierce starts here he starts as this sort of polit politically sort of inclined guy who needs to rise and he ends up somewhere else. He ends up changing. There's Russell Crowe, who's who's has this sort of personal sense of vendetta because he's, well, which is almost delivered in in di in dialogue in passing, in like the exposition behind his character is, is delivered sort of as he's talking to other people because he confesses that his he witnesses his father beat his mom to death. Um, and that's why 
he the first time you see him is when he uh, intervenes in a in a domestic dispute and beats the crap out of a guy who beats his wife. Yeah. But you see he has an arc. He he mellows, he becomes the good cop as as Guy Pierce becomes the bad cop, right? <laughs> so so they kind of just meet in this sort of twilight zone and that's an interesting progression and I I can't possibly tell you how Josh Hartnett changes, how Aaron Eckhart changes. How Scarlett Johansson changes. None of these people, they, these people are stencils to me, and I feel like this is this is this is the main difference because maybe this is this is this is why I would like to see. Uh, maybe this is why I would like to see these people. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I would like to read the book to see how these characters are given some room to breathe because for as as depicted on the screen. They, yeah, they don't. They don't have depth. They're just just clearly two dimensional, and I don't. I don't really. This is probably one of the main reasons why the film doesn't work for me, like at all. So yeah, that way. It feels like there's a lot of darkness and sleaziness and just more to it that's missing, which makes it. I don't know. It makes it heartbreaking to watch. Because it does feel ultimately like a wasted opportunity. Because it's like, this could have worked so much better with just a, a proper script. Who even, who even wrote her Lake Confidential, actually? Uh, it was Brian Helgeland. There you go. Like That's a, that's a generally very good screenwriter. Uh, Cur- Curtis Hansen also has a screenplay credit on this as well. Right. I think. That was an Oscar winner, too. And mm-hmm. An Oscar winner, yes, for good reasons. Like... It's they so. they wasted it. I don't know why they rushed this. They should have waited more. I don't. I don't. I don't see a longer cut fixing the problems. Honestly, if anything, I can see it being maybe e- easier to follow if you spend more times with the characters. I don't know. Maybe if you refocus around something else to give these people some kind of progression, like focus around the romance, focus around some oh, kind of no, drama, around like no, create a drama the between these people. Like something, because these people are just existing in this. Like, and I don't, I don't quite understand what kind of a relationship they are, they're in. Like when, when Josh Hartnett's just, you know, making an absolute pigsty out of a kitchen table because they <laughs> decide to bang in there. I just, I don't understand why. What the ramifications of this will be? I don't care whether like is, are they going to be found out? Is this is this going to you know like drive a thorn between these two people? No, I don't care because I'm, I've never been introduced to any sort of relationship between these people. I, I think there's this idea. I, I, I think there's sort of a, a hint at what probably is in the book and what probably would have been in the uh, the original cut is that Eckhart and uh, Johansson are not romantically involved. He saved her and they're just sort of coexisting. And the romance is always ever supposed to be between Hartnett and Johansson. And so there is supposed to be a bit of a progression there, but it, you just get a little bit of a, a sense of that or a, a dropped line um, later on, but it's way too late to care. Like, I, I feel like I need to see that. I need, I need, I, I, I need, I need some context to that because it just sort of dropped on me and yeah, who cares? Maybe, maybe the, maybe the fact that maybe this is just how Elroy writes because I'm, 
I haven't, okay, well, this is me speaking from the position of a complete ignoramus because I haven't re re read a single book of his, but this basically just based on comparisons between LA Confidential, the film, and the script, and, and the Black Dahlia, the film, you can see certain similarities in terms of the narrative and how the narratives are built. He loves these plots that are just, there's so much going on. Like in, in here you have, you have the Black Dahlia murder, murder there's this, there's this pimp that they're staking out. There's this guy. There's there's um, the political intrigue of some kind of um, some people are paying paying for for something to get, to get done, and then some roads are being built, or I can't remember exactly what's going on. And then there's this underbelly sort of pornographic industry on that some people are responsible for. And there's this guy who owns quite a lot of Hollywood because he was there when when it was built, and now he owns. He's like the Donald Trump of of LA because he just owns the buildings that everyone works in and then he's supposed to be some kind of a business ma business magnet that he, he like it feels like the film wants to be Chinatown right <laughs> yeah and then but again like we watch Chinatown and the driving force in Chinatown is the fact that there's you have no idea what's happening because you're in Jack Nicholson's shoes and as he's finding out what's happening and how, how he's digging into the rabbit holes and then you never have this sort of om omniscient sort of bird's eye god's eye view over these things you're just learning as you go along and then you what you find out is what sells you on the story because what you find out is absolutely terrifying and here this doesn't really gel for me there's so many things happening at once and then you i think i actively make a decision not to care because I, I, there's only so much ram i have in my brain and then it's <laughs> i can't I, I can't you know assimilate all this information all at once whereas in la confidential you have the same situation where there is these you know there's there's this but it's a little bit simpler so there's this murder you don't know what's going on there's some kind of a conspiracy there are these people doing this there are these dirty cops doing that there's mickey cohen doing this there's drugs there's david strathiron having this fleur de lis club of these sort of hookers that are made to look like movie stars but it's easier to follow because you're still, but because you're again, you're in the shoes of people who have no clue what's happening as they're trying to figure it out. And uh, am I supposed to be in the shoes of Josh Hartnett? Am I supposed to be in the shoes of um, of Aaron Eckhart? I don't think I am. And if I am supposed to be and I'm not, I think this is a failure either on my behalf or on the behalf of the filmmakers who didn't allow me the the the, the, the opportunity to go, to actually put these shoes on. But that it literally puts you in the shoes in one scene. There is a POV tracking shot inside the house where you feel the cringe <laughs> of visiting the girlfriend's family. Um, but this about, to me, again, this is like an indulgence. As in like, oh, it's a POV <laughs> shot because because De Palma is basically just saying, like, I want to do this from a POV, from a POV perspective because that's what I do. And there's no split screen in this thing. A few split is... actors, though. Oh, a couple, yeah. yeah. I, I, I just realized while you were talking that the best Brian De Palma films, for me at least, are the ones where the main characters are psychologically complex. Like I was looking at my, I was Carlito's Way, Blowout, Carrie, Femme Fatale, Body Double, Dressed to Kill even. Just I think about the main characters and their emotions and their inner struggles and how they change and how complicated they are. And it's very twisted narratives and everything that happens. And here there's none of that. It's an and ensemble piece as well, because there's three characters you need to inhabit. 
but you're still but but it's still focusing you primarily on Josh Hartnett and like uh, Aaron Eckert f- dies like 40 minutes before the movie ends it's kind of like eh, it doesn't really matter like it, it, that's the thing they they are made up to look when like he dies, Cole like I totally Lee. forgot <laughs> So there you go. <laughs> just, they put it in the furnace as well. Like it's dawned on you. There, there's like another why. <laughs> yes, but that, that that's the thing. Like they are made up to feel like co-leads, but they do nothing. Maybe they're not psychologically complex because they're too punch drunk as pugilists and boxers. Yes. There's just no sophistication <laughs> just left. Too many concussions. <laughs> no. You see. This, the, another thing that kind of bothers me, it's not that it bothers, it's a bit of a pet peeve for me in terms of how characters are written, where you could, I could, you could show me a film with certain things and I could possibly deduce quite easily that it's based on a book and it's, be, and it's adapted from a book by someone who didn't know whether he should kill his darlings or not. Like the scene in the beginning with, where Josh Hartnett gets, um, gets his front teeth taken out in the in the in the in the boxing match why is why is it there what's the purpose of the scene he's willing to lose his teeth if it means <laughs> i mean he just he loses his teeth by accident because he gets punched in the face i mean he allows himself to be punched in the face, but loses his mouth guard and he gets punched again he just his front teeth just fly into the uh, which is a nice the, shot to be honest like the teeth falling on the scorecard whatever it's called on the it's kind table. of like a raging bull moment because everything's kind of like this high speed <laughs> sort of camera work that's but that's a purpose nice is one. i think to show a little bit of his uh willingness to throw a fight and then you learn that he's yes. a little bit more straight laced than lee is because he's willing to go farther as a dirty cop um but it, uh, again I don't care. It's not presented in a way that I feel I should care. I, I think that's what it's about, but who cares? I, I've not read the novel, but I wouldn't be surprised if there's one element that can make his character... Um, uh, I, I keep saying Josh Hutcherson. Why? Josh yeah. Hartnett. <laughs> Josh Hartnett. Josh Hartnett's character more interesting, and it's something that they very briefly touch upon, which is, is German... Like his father mm-hmm. is German, and we are in literal post World War II Los Angeles, and you have mm-hmm. a, a, a German. And his father fought in World War One for the Germans. He fought in World War, and he's is is in the police force. And it's like there's there's no ramifications for that detail. There's no mm-hmm. like race. I don't, it's not like I want racism in my stories. So it's kind of like, well, th- there will be some tensions. I, I can imagine. <laughs> I mean, just to me, this isn't. This is an element of the historical those... fiction, right? Yeah, but it keeps sprinkling those, those. Uh, I don't know. It's, it's confetti. It's just there. For... Yeah, that, this is just for uh, for entourage, right? But sure. To me, like, yeah. The, this this idea of like this guy being German or having a German name and having a purpose to have a conversation with one, with one character to build some kind of a rapport with him, right? That's the the Hillary Swank's father, right? Mm-hmm. It's just how oh, we killed a lot of you now. <laughs> Or whatever, because he's uh, he's Scottish, I think, if I remember correctly. He's Scottish, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, so there's this for some goddamn reason, like this, like this. To me, this is also an element of just the character work that kind of go, go, goes well on the page. Like 
James Cromwell's is it James Cromwell's character in in LA Confidential has an Irish accent that no one ever pays no one ever really right. just mentions he just has an Irish accent he could just as well not have one but he has one no one really and the, in one sentence he goes just like ah oh, I wouldn't I wouldn't want to be in his shoes for all the whiskey in Ireland or something like this like that's all <laughs> but he just has this sort of slight you know Irish drawl and then. In here, you have like this the teeth, the the German name. To me, this is these are elements that work on the page, like because you don't have a visual, like if you're reading, if I'm reading a book, like last thing I want to read is descriptions of people. There's just his eyes were brown, mm. and his this chin had this dimple <laughs> that looked like this. I'm like, I don't care. I don't give a shit. Like what I want out of a a, a, a successful novelist can take me on without uh, describing anything. Like I, I can read a Cormac McCarthy book and he doesn't get, describe shit. Like not, no one gets a description in there. But you know exactly what people look like because he gives you just about enough. A good writer gives you just about enough. Like he will give you this character trait as in like he just corrected his fake teeth and then you imagine things around it. Like if, like, I don't know, someone walks into a, uh, into a dark cellar, I don't want to read se seven paragraphs about how there's, uh, you know, pickle jars here, there's the, you know, there's, there's, there, there's dust on, on the shelf, there's, this is brown, this is green, this used to be red, and now it's kind of, kind of just shitty beige, because it's sun bleach. I don't want to hear descriptions like this. All I want to hear is just, uh, all I want to see is a vague description of like, there's a flickering light of a light bulb, and it smells of rotten flesh, and then I do the rest in my head. And I feel like these are these are elements that could have been really left out because because it just I have I have the guy's face in front of me. I don't need this. And I feel like this is where the screenwriters will be like, like I don't know, I don't feel comfortable removing stuff because it feels like it's important. And if it was important, it would have been paid off somewhere in, the, in, in, in later on in the story. And like, I don't know, it would have become a part of this sort of plot in some description, or maybe it would have, I don't know, would have come back in some way. It doesn't. And if it does, I didn't remember. So <laughs> apologies. <laughs> but yeah, so it feels like the film is just filled with, these, with this extraneous, superfluous detail that could have just been left out and just make i don't know this film needs to be leaned out it needs to needs to be just i don't need the proper butcher to kind of remove all the sort of fat and then leave me with a nice fillet it's yeah it's yeah just... like i i think what because i was looking at the josh friedman's career the screenwriter and he's avatar too maybe but isn't really a screenwriter per se because he's written like in terms of scripts he has written avatar 2 um war of the worlds and black dahlia and that's it it's a lot of tv sci-fi isn't he yeah, a lot of tv sci-fi mm -hmm. that he has developed the story for so i can see him being fairly good at kind of like you know yeah. plot beats go from a to b to c to lead to z fine sure a showrunner type a show of showrunner yes but yeah. when it comes to actually just sitting down and writing he, he did the same thing for chain reaction he, he only wrote the story for it and he read the screenplay so it's uh, yeah i think it's just not i don't want to say it's not that good it sounds very rough 
but just I think he's more skilled in planning something rather than actually sitting down and writing the dialogue and the characters and the actions. Because even then, like we 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 talked, we spent the whole month talking about the Palma, and even in some of his weaker films, you still have memorable set pieces. And here's there's two scenes. There's the crane shot and the stairwell and the fountain. Yeah, that's it. It's like wow. I think Friedman here feels that he owes a great debt to the novel, to the material. Like it definitely feels that way, yeah. That, that could be a that could be a big part of it. And it took him forever to to write, but it, it just seems like he's pulling these elements out of the book. Um, you know, it's it's almost as if Elroy is using Friedman as a puppet to sort of nuance this the way that he wants. Um, yeah, I agree with what you you guys say. It's it's not working, and it's 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 superfluous a lot of this uh detail like so here's a here's a follow-up question how does brian de palma fit into this equation as a filmmaker as a director as a as a voice right because it clearly looks like everyone was trying to jerk off james elroyd for pardon my french right because it honestly feels like everyone wants like it, he's like this sort of sacred cow this just needs to be, you know, paid heed to. It's just like, look, I, I hope James loves this. Like, who gives a shit? Like, if this was Stanley Kubrick adapting this, you, this would look nothing like the novel, and it would probably be great, right? <laughs> so, and then probably the guy would hate it because he's just like, oh, he butchered my novel. That's great because your novel is a good novel, but if you adapt it into a film just as it is, it would be shit like this. So, <laughs> so yeah. So how does how does Brand De Palma fit into this? Because as we've established, he wasn't an originator of this idea. He wa- this wasn't something that kind of came part to to borrow a frame for uh, uh, to borrow a phrase from our, our good buddy Jack. It came from his loins. Um, uh, so how yeah, where is this place in here? And then how much responsibility can you actually place on his shoulders? And then what? Yeah, does does his um, I don't know involvement redeem any of the problems of the story, or does it exacerbate these problems, or do you not care? Where where to begin with that? Um, I, De Palma's on the record as really liking this this book. Uh, I think that he uh, also likes uh, you know film film noir, uh, you know, just from his childhood. So I think there's a a fit there on the surface. Um, I, I think that uh, De Palma was, you know, happy to to take this on and uh, sort of a, a explore some of the the themes here. But um, at the at the end of the day, he's he's walking in, and his work with uh, Zygmunt creates a very specific cinematography, uh, and the the look of the film I, I think is is great. And you do have a couple of these set pieces, but where De Palma can't really maneuver is he doesn't have other set pieces to make the different uh, acts work. So he's, he's got a couple of good set pieces in there, but um, because it's not his baby, it's not, it's not working. Like he walks into mission impossible and he makes set pieces, which drive the entirety of the acts of the film. And that just doesn't work here. And I, I think that uh, De Palma is, he has so much, content in in the script and so many details that in a way it doesn't really matter that it's it's him that's involved i think the script is just 
damning this thing uh, as as it is. And De Palma can make a few moments sing, but uh, it's it's not going to, you know, make the shelf life of this film last any longer. You know, in my in my view, that's my take. Yeah, I, I don't really. I barely feel his hand behind the camera, and we again, like we we talked about the whole the self-referential cinema of the palm and the fact that he keeps homaging films and directors that he loves, and even this one doesn't feel like a film noir. And there was something was even watching it the first time, though I liked it back then. I still thought there's something odd in this film. I cannot quite. Just, point my finger as to what it is. But then I watched the documentary and I found out, oh, they shot this in Bulgaria. Well, most no, most of it or some of it. Most then, of it. Most of it. Bulgaria is kind of like, I don't know, climate-wise, it's very much like LA, right? <laughs> sure. Well, maybe not, because like, LA is kind of like some... North Africa. <laughs> yeah, like you're watching North, LA Confidential, like you both mentioned, and it like you feel LA... You're watching uh, Double Indemnity and it feels like the same city, even though, you know, sets and whatever, but still, like it feels like you're in the actual place with the palm trees and all that. And you're watching Black Dahlia and it's like the most anonymous version of LA that I've seen. It's all interiors as well. Mostly interiors and a few exteriors are like that. Honestly, like the crane shot is very destabilizing because there's nothing in the distance even though you can say yeah but they're outside of the main city fair enough but still it looks odd just with that all empty space you see the hollywood land sign once cgi or whatever mm-hmm. so you know it's even the sense of place doesn't work like even even if you even if one could defend it as a pastiche and homage to noir there's still small things that take away from the magic of actually capturing that type of cinema, which he did better in other movies, I'd say, that we talked about. See, the, the, I, don't, I wouldn't even, I don't know, if someone t- tried to tell me, oh, this is p- pastiche of, of, of noir, I would say it, in the most superficial way possible. That's, this was like some 4 or 4.5 reviews said. Is, is, is it beca- only because, well, Hilary Swank wears black and Kay is is always kind of in light colors she's a blonde and that one has dark hair so that's a femme fatale that's she's clearly an angel a, an angel and then you know like these like you can you know you can f- almost feel like there's saxophone in the background every time josh hartnett opens his mouth um you know oh it's so hard to focus on what he's saying it's 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 cliched noir da- noir narration that's even worse after having watched like we talked about um sunset boulevard a couple months ago where it's like chef's kiss the, the, the voiceover in that terrific stuff and i'm hearing this and it's, i don't know what he's talking about <laughs> just he's yapping about nothing it's that's an interesting metaphors. point i was i was watching um an interview with De Palma and he's talking about this and, and he seems to be into the the noir thing and he talks about the voiceover and I often hate voiceovers. I didn't necessarily hate this, but it didn't do anything for me either. Mm-hmm. I thought it was sort of pointless. Um, but De Palma said that what he liked was the, the language, which sort of comes from Elroy's novel because it has flavor and has a certain snappy punch of 1940s dialogue. So 
and I guess that's why I didn't mind it too much. But at, at the same point, like it's the film noir device is uh, certainly one of them is the voiceovers. But what what's it doing? It's it's not necessarily filling filling in exposition that I need in a way that's meaningful. It might be dropping names that I don't know or don't care about. Uh, but you know, it's it's just one more element that yeah, like like you said. Jacob, it's it's sort of like everyone seems to want to please Elroy with this, but it's not working. And, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's just uh, you know I'm 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 thinking about the question that I posed myself as well. <laughs> I'm just thinking to myself that you know a film like this, especially having rewatched L.A. Confidential, and it's a two and a half hour film that goes like this. It's a breeze. Fine in two sittings because I like we finished yesterday and I, it was like almost like midnight when I started so it was like a half past one when I decided like I'm, I should probably just finish this this in the morning. <laughs> Savor it. Uh, yeah, but it's just you know, like you you blink and it's like oh it's it's mid it's almost morning right <laughs> no one cares. Um, I feel like a film that that's this dense uh, that this reliant on. Okay, well this. <laughs> Okay, it needs a it needs a filmmaker or needs the filmmaker to be able to kill his darlings and say, okay, I need to work in service of the story because the story is clearly complex and needs quite a lot of attention. So I don't really want to draw attention to myself too much, and I feel like Curtis Hansen does it very well because the film doesn't like LA Conf- like name me a moment from the film. It does not have a moment. Like there's a climactic shootout where it's just like, oh yeah, there's a shootout in there. Like, do you remember anything about it? No, none. No, nothing really registers in this. What registers is that you just enjoy the story as it's going along. You enjoy being on the on on this journey to find out what the hell's happening and how crooked all these people are. In here, you kind of really want the same thing. Like, I want Ron Howard to make this film. Like oh, someone no. who, someone who, like I want a jobber, like I don't know, someone who would not really just make this like, oh, this is a good excuse for me to redo my Odessa steps sequence and then do it in a stairwell, pretty much, right? Um, I can, I can feel like, yeah, there's maybe this is part of the issue. Like, fair enough, the, the script has its own issues. I, I think I'm putting to one one side, but I feel like the department's not helping with. Just drawing attention to okay, well, are his split diopters utilitarian? Some of them are, but some of them I just feel like you could have done this in a number of a, a, a different number way uh, of ways, but you're kind of drawing my focus away from what's happening from the plot. I'm I'm trying to follow because I'm just like oh, it's a split diopter because it's a department film. Like just, I wonder what he's trying to do with the split diopter thing. It's just <laughs> just why, and yeah, so I feel like. As a as a film noir, it almost feels like it it needs to focus on being one, not not being a film noir a la De Palma, right? And that to me kind of just is a I don't want to say a big mistake, but it's not helping. You know? Yeah, but it, it, even then, it doesn't do enough to make it interesting, which is what makes the whole movie worse. Is that he says even in the documentaries like. Oh, I always try to take scenes that anyone else would shoot with like a shot reverse shot. And I try to make it visually interesting. But in this one, I don't know if it's restrained 
I don't know if it's because he cared relatively little about the project, which doesn't sound like it. That's the thing. But still, it's 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 so forgettable. Like I've seen it two two days ago, and I'm already forgetting like visuals of this film and entire scenes. There's honestly, there's just there's only one thing that I think is genuinely great in this film that we haven't mentioned yet. I think it's time we mention her, Mia Kirshner, mm-hmm. as the Black Dahlia. Oh, she's gonna make an appearance. Don't worry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that, that's whenever she's on screen, I'm like, this is the movie that I want. Unsurprisingly, the Black Dahlia. <laughs> I want a movie about the Black Dahlia, please. I want a movie about the case. I want to know who this woman is, and that's make that's what makes it even more frustrating. And I had this conversation with my sister, and she. She really hated the male gaze of the movie. I was like, well, you know, I mean, he's Brian De Palma, come on. But she was like, no, no, that's fine. Just get real. <laughs> get real, come on. You've seen, you've seen the, whatever. I don't, I don't remember what we saw together. We've, we've seen a couple of his films. She was like, no, no. But Show a dress to kill. Whoa. <laughs> body, with a body double. Body like double. Come double on, feature. <laughs> no, but, but she said, rightfully so, she said, like, all of the female characters are incredibly bland, very one note, very surface level and the only one that has a little bit of depth is the black dahlia and even then you never get to know who she is and it only really works because of the performance it was like you're you're right she's the only genuinely great performance in the whole movie she shows in a couple moments this like subtlety the pain that she's carrying inside of her and she's trying to hide it through her acting um, and through something that's a bit worse than acting, just working in adult films that she doesn't want to partake in, it's very tragic. But again, there's there's not enough of her. There's not, not enough of anything about that. You never feel like you actually delve into her. And I would have preferred something more like, I don't know, like Aaron Eckert's version of the events because he becomes obsessed with her. But you never feel the obsession for Josh Hartnett. Therefore, you as the audience member never feel an obsession for her. And that should have been the driving force of the movie. Mm-hmm. And that, all the screen tests weren't part of the original script. So if this took seven or eight years to develop, like the screen test idea came to the script very late in the game. So Friedman mm-hmm. had 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 a couple friends read the script and they said it's okay uh but there's something missing because we don't know we don't know the black dahlia we don't know the elizabeth short character so then he hummed and hawed over that and came up with this screen test idea and it's the one stroke of genius i can say is in the script and yes. mia kirshner is amazing i love mia kirshner and have ever since exotica in 1994 she is a phenomenal performer and she is uh far and away the best performance in this film and brian de palma off screen who's feeding her lines and talking to her is probably the second best performance yes. in the whole film <laughs> oh. agreed I can, give me yeah. 90 minutes of that all the screen <laughs> tests I'm, I'm i'm happy i'm a happy boy and a lot of that comes from uh uh, murder a la mode he has a lot of uh, scenes like mm. that in where he's just sort of experimenting and interviewing actresses and he's talking off screen so a lot of those screen tests were filmed in sort of a similar way to that experimental film of his mm-hmm. there you go let's see 
I don't know. Maybe maybe there, there is a missing ingredient. Like, so why why would okay? What's the reason to bring Brian De Palma onto a film like this? Why why do you hire like if you're a producer on this film and David Fincher just walked off uh, walked off the pro- project because you didn't allow him to make it a five hour miniseries and then when when he said fine I'm not going to make a five hour miniseries I'm, I'm going to make a three hour black and white film um, and then he said no go away and he went to make Zodiac instead right. Um, why do you hire Brian De Palma just because he's free and it's cheap or yes (laughs) or is there a reason to 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 hire him do you want your film to have a specific voice I mean as a producer if I were to put my producer's hat on which I do not have really I do not have a hat um, I would say I would probably if I wanted Brian De Palma I would hire him to actually bring something to the table not just to make sure that shit's done on time right I mean, it's... they probably saw Untouchables and they were like, he's mm-hmm. done those eras of movies once. Well, eh? The Untouchables, Scarface, Carlitos Way as well. So, so, so you, could, you could see that the gangster sort of noir films are kind of his bag as well. But to me, at least, yeah. like when you think about the... When I think about Scarface, which is, again, a remake of a classic noir film, again, right? Um, what sets this... Okay, if, even if you consider I mean, Scarface in the 1930s was quite quite violent for its time as well, but what may, what sells you on the film or what sells you on the the Untouchables is the fact that these are noir films filtered through a very modern lens, and kind of like what he does does to Hitchcock films, filled, imbued with what what the original authors of the time dealing with this genre wouldn't be able to do. Which to me boils down to violence, nudity, gratuitous imagery, which is something that's been a staple in his in his in, in, in he was a shtick, right? Yeah. Like we talked about dress to kill, we talked about um, blowout, we talk about like, there's there's nudity and there's violence in his films that's just off the charts very often, and in here it's nowhere to be seen. It's either off screen or very sort of toned down, and when again coming back to LA Confidential, one of the films, one of the things that sells you on LA Confidential being interesting in 1997 <laughs> is the fact that it's a noir film, but it's but it's a noir film filtered through a modern lens and it's extremely violent. Like it is extremely violent. It's gross. It's gruesome, and it, this is what some like Fritz Lang would have never gotten away with this make, making making like the big heat like this, <laughs> or Nicholas Ray wouldn't wouldn't have made the lo- in the lonely place, um, with people just getting their arm their arm cho- chopped off. Or uh, although in in here there are these moments like there's this dildo sequence like it just, um, but <laughs> it almost feels like I would want to to be able to see a film that's kind of like filmed in an aesthetic of something that could have been made in the 40s, but but made to look like seven or like eight millimeters, where it's just gross. There's just things that you would have never gotten away with in 1949. And you just have an opportunity to do this because someone's applying this aesthetic onto something modern and then, and, and, and then feeds you this type of story that would probably be closer to what reality of these sort of noir stories, like what the Black Dahlia murder was like as well, because, you know, in the 40s, they wouldn't have showed you that like a dismembered body like this. It would have been, um, I don't know, off screen. It would have it would have been described to you. I want just remember the flight. I want the, the goods flight. and I don't get the goods. <laughs> yeah, you, you get that weird jump scare at the end. 
which is yeah cool. and all that's by choice like De Palma's he's staying away from that staple of his and I'm not 100% sure what the idea is maybe I think in part it's that this real life crime was so gruesome that I'm just going to save the clear view of how gruesome it was to that brief flash at the end because that's mm-hmm. sort of the that's sort of the psychological thing like carry I mean this hand out of the grave to get Josh Hartnett yeah but he's saving it <clears throat> till the end and mm-hmm. he's avoiding showing it so it's a very odd reveal like we were saying earlier where we first see um, the body of Elizabeth Short discovered way off in the distance you almost can't necessarily in the peripheral of the body. frame you see her face this is great yeah. by the way this is very well what's the word evocative right mm. yeah very suggestive but there are other moments like when these people punch other people or shoot them i want to i don't want the 40s mm. violence in here this is a film from 2006 with brandy palmas in there the guy who would not shy away from 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 show, showing you scenes where people get hacked to pieces with a chainsaw in 1983 or drilled through the floor with a massive cord or well, cord full drill <laughs> um in a very suggestive sequence or just show Andrew Dickinson get a, getting a, a razor blade to the face right in close up I don't get this kind of like the bare knuckle violence that this this film could have had Especially if you think, because I I was thinking about this, watching the movie, I was like, oh, everything started with Snake Eyes, where we said it was a bit too sanitized for its own good. But then I remembered, oh, whoops, right before this, he made Femme Fatale, which is anything but a sanitized it's movie. gratuitous, again, but then, you know. This is like, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Poor De Palma. How the mighty so- have fallen. But there's something in his style too. I think that uh, around this time, like he's exploring with these longer shots, like with with Snake Eyes and even the the, the Zoot Suit ride at the beginning here. Like it's this really long, complicated, choreographed affair, as opposed to something which uh, where you could have um, a, a more uh, you know, specifically edited and violent, but like you could have something with the zoot suit rides that you had with the boxing match, where you have you know more more visuals on on the violence. It's it's interesting, and I and I find like these long shots, it takes away any flexibility you have in the editing. So it might be a really good idea. Let's do this complicated shot where we've got this riot, we've got. 80 extras, you know, fighting on the streets and the camera sort of swoops around um, into the alley. Well, if that's all going to be two minutes and the first minute of it is that long shot, there's not a lot of choice left in when it comes to editing. Like you're sort of stacking all your, uh, you're putting all your cards into one hand, right? So I, I don't know, but he's doing something with at this time, like he does it a bit in uh, Femme Fatale with these, you know, long moving uh, shots, these long pans, and he's doing it in Snake Eyes, and he's doing it a bit here too. So maybe it's just, I don't know, the the mood that he's in. Maybe if he does these long takes, then he wraps up the scene sooner, you know, so we don't have to do eighteen different setups for I don't know, this, a this minute feels of like footage. This is kind of like drawing attention to himself right it's just like because it looks cool it takes a lot of effort to set up and it feels like a feat of strength right but honestly like you you show me the zoot suit riot again right this film opens with this i'm just thinking have i accidentally oh like 
put on my Blu-ray for 1941 instead. Because <laughs> it's, it's just like, it almost feels out of place. This stuff feels uh, out of place. The sort of directorial sort of voices and then these little notes of, uh, this is me being being Brian De Palma, almost feel like they they don't belong. Like, yeah, it's just it's just odd. Which kind of, yeah, I, I don't even know where to go. Just, and then, because it doesn't work in the service of the story, and the story itself has its problems, and then I, I might, we kind of might as well omit it as well, because we, I, I wanted to kind of ask you what, what you guys, by the way, think about how this film resolves. Like, when you have the big reveals, like, who, do, who did it? And I'm like, okay. Any thoughts on this, by the way? I hate this family. I hate everyone <laughs> in this family. I I hate the reveal. I don't understand the need to have this connection to the man who laughs and this I don't know fan art all over the place. The this buddy who's the the gardener that's William Finley, like this you know weirdo that they allow to live on the property somewhere. Uh, and then you've got um, Fiona Shaw. Her performance just absolutely drives me bonkers. It's Jesus. I don't know if she belongs on a top on a top three or a bottom three list. By the way, well, she injects energy in the movie. I'll say that at least. <laughs> well, there's there's something. the energy there, and and maybe uh, when uh, Joaquin Phoenix is stretching out his cheeks in joker maybe that is a reference to her awkward uh, moment in the climax where she is making this stretched out smile it's do you think this is, do you think todd phillips told him how about we reference the black dahlia and then harkin was like i i don't what? think that actually but that's all i could think of when i'm watching this <laughs> just todd phillips is a blind department connoisseur <laughs> Just, yeah, a niche one too. It's an know, embarrassing yeah. climax. That's all I'll say. It's just everything about it. From the from from the oh wait, I remember that I gave my my buddy the matchsticks case that has the yes the the driving the, what what's the license plate written down of, of yeah. Hillary Swank? It's like what? How, why? And then he goes back to the house, and Fiona Shaw is there. He's like, what? And she explains everything, and I miss she, like three she or comes four out of nowhere as well. Points. Just like I did it. <laughs> you know what? I did it. I'm gonna say why I did it, and I'm gonna shoot myself. Bye. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Fiona Shaw enters that scene. I was gonna save this for later, but she comes out of this room, and she's yelling, "Liar!" And I thought it was Carol Kane from The Princess Bride who <laughs> <laughs> oh, rushes out nice. yelling at Billy Crystal. That's <laughs> nice. the crossover we needed. <laughs> yeah, because I'm I'm watching this, the climax, the big reveal, and I'm thinking to myself, this is what, it's not that this is what makes Chinatown so much better, but this is one of those things when you hear a reveal, it's just like fucking Jesus, really. In here, it's just okay. So, who is she again? <laughs> so, so, it just—I I don't know. It's such a yeah. It's a—I I don't know. It, it, it's such a wet noodle. It's just—it just hurts me. 
I, I, I don't know if anyone cared about Hilary Swank and whether she was mysterious to you guys or in any shape or form because holy she's shit, obviously like evil. Well, because she's obviously is black. <laughs> she's shady as like from the first moment she enters the movie, she's super shady. Nothing, there's nothing believable in the relationship. Like she's not particularly effective as a femme fatale. Where you go like, oh, I can believe her like seducing Josh Hart. And it's like, no, why are you going to her house? Why is she making you meet her parents? Why are you going back then to a hotel to bang? Why is any of this happening? Like, I don't believe it. And you know she's evil. She looks evil. She acts evil. It's clearly her who stabs and slits uh, Aaron Eckhart's throat. Like, there's no mystery there. You can tell it's her silhouette because we've seen her many it's times. Or, or Scarlett Johansson, right? And it's clearly not Scarlett Johansson. It's clearly not Scarlett Johansson, yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, do, well, here's a question. If she's a femme fatale, what makes a femme fatale femme fatale? Just canonically. Mysterious, I'd say. I don't know. Mysterious, oh. alluring, constantly going back and forth between being likable and romantic and being manipulative and evil. And and I, I mean, he's made, like, the Palm has made an entire movie about one of them. And he's had femme fatale-like characters in other films. And, you know... It's... Even titled one femme fatale. No, yeah, yeah, this yeah. it's the one, yeah. <laughs> well, there's always an ulterior motive, right? So, mm. um, but as soon as you see Hillary Swank show up, you know, clearly she's got agendas going on, and you know her character's heading down that direction. Uh, so that there's going to be a twist involving her, and that there's something shady that you know she's managing. Uh, so she's not a very mysterious femme fatale. And then mm. you've got what I would call a fairly clumsy accent as well. <laughs> That's like, one way to put it. Jesus. What's supposed to be her accent, by the way? It's Scottish. Uh... She's Scottish. She's supposed to be American, right? Because her, her father is like properly Scottish, Scottish, right? It's, you know, too much time in your household, you pick up the accents. <laughs> I don't know. I, I think it makes no sense. A, I. I choppy emulation of something that she might have studied on old TV shows <laughs> like, or something. It's like Brad Pitt's uh, Irish accent in Devil's Own. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I hope it's her choice and not the Palmas. I hope she was very proud of it and the Palma written rough with it. But, but, you know, bless her, I guess. Five bucks says this is something that probably Josh Friedman lit, uh, wrote in Ita- italics italics on in, in the in the script because this is just picked out from Elroy's novel again like James Cromwell's Irish accent for no fucking reason <laughs> it's just um, to, to me maybe maybe I'm being okay well, t- tell me if, if if you disagree with this to, to me like the idea of femme fatale as a character is supposed to be someone who takes the character the main character off it of their trajectory so it's supposed to be like He's like she's supposed to corrupt a good guy, or at least attempt to do so, and then in like the more successful noirs, you actually see how they successfully corrupt them, right? Like you, you in your guilders, in your double indemnities, you see this, this sort of downfall of men, uh, which is, again male gaze and whatever, like this problematic again. Sit down, 
you know, anyway. I think it would have worked in here if these characters were on an on an arc, but they're not. <laughs> like right. I feel like, a, yeah. like he's trying to seduce or manipulate or corrupt Josh Hartnett, who's just a static figure. <laughs> it's just what is she, who's she's trying. She's trying to corrupt a rock, as far as I'm concerned. So, yeah, you know, she'll she'll say, "Want to bang?" Yeah. Do you think I'm bad? Yeah. You know, like, he's, Are he's you lying a to me? No, I'm telling you, I'm serious. I'm totally super serious. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's messy. <sighs> I don't know. I feel, I feel this is a good time to wrap this up, isn't it? Because <laughs> it's kind of like we're, this, this horse is dead. Finishing on a low note. <laughs> this horse is dead. We've been flogging it for a while now. <laughs> Uh, we already we shot it in the head as soon as we started. There was there was only another way we were going to go. Yeah, because otherwise it's animal cruelty, you know. At least it's you know, it's just, anyway. Put it out of its misery. <laughs> it's just it's still animal cruelty. Uh, anyway, so final takes, Randy. Tell me what your final take is. Did you change your mind as a result of, uh, of this conversation? <laughs> Uh, no, but in listening to you guys, I, I think you've allowed me to use more negative language. I tried to uh, sugarcoat it in my opening a bit. This is sort of a clumsy piece to get through. Um, I really tried to understand this this mystery, and it is clunky as hell. It really doesn't work. Um, and yeah, I really don't like this. At the At the end of the day, I think that sort of the source material here is beloved by a lot of people um not the least of which is elroy so he he said that uh like i watched an interview with him too and he said that this film is the culmination of de palma's career <laughs> which, wow i mean which, maybe maybe he was talking about the director's cut he saw that apparently is amazing and who knows could be i i sort of wonder after our uh discussion if fincher probably had the right idea there's a lot of good content here if we if we look at this novel and it would exist as a really good mini series you know it it could be something that has 5 6 7 8 episodes and uh would work quite well something that he would go on to show run uh is it called Mind Hunters? I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that was. Yeah, that someone was needs good. to uh, pitch it to Netflix yeah. and, and tell David Fincher to come back and do it again. Yeah, so there could be something there. Like if if you had uh, an episode that was devoted to uh, understanding this whole Bobby Witt getting out of prison business and the backstory between Bobby DeWitt, you know, carving his initials on Scarlett Johansson's ass, which is really just in this film something to look at, but you know, what does all this mean? And, you know, how upset should I be that I see basically Scarlett Johansson is branded? Like, it's it's all so You're being awkward. told exactly five seconds later. It's just like, just so you know, because you don't know, it's Bobby Duet. Do it. It's just... Yes. You know, because yeah. we've got... Because That's like, what the it's BD like BD, what for. the fuck? It's BD Wong? What's going on? It's like, it's like Dahlia? <laughs> what? Go watch Body Double. <laughs> no, I honestly thought it was just like BD and then she turns around and there's just across her abdomen says Wong. <laughs> uh, so this this material as in the in the novel, you know, it's it's probably, you know, ripe for exploration, but through the various translations that it got first to this 
first to the screenplay and then to what we see on screen. It, it's just not coming in a way that works as a mystery. It's not coming in a way where I can follow along with characters and their arcs. Um, you know, the plot by plot beats, they don't work. Um, De, De Palma has, you know, he has influence over some nice moments in here uh, visually. But, you know, who cares is what it all comes down to, to me. So. <laughs> it's just William Friedkin noises. Who gives a shit? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, Nick, final take. This is make eyes all over again. Where I started off at a high, relatively higher point in my I'm ranking, so and now it's just lower. Now it's between the Fury and Domino. <laughs> so you know, I think if we kept on talking for like another half an hour, it'd be between Domino and Passion. Just it's just not good. It's just, just there's very very little good greatness to latch on to here. Um, I would bored, almost say that people who love this film are delusional, <laughs> like myself two years ago, that I ended, like, ended up liking the film back then. Those are like Elroy apologists as well. I guess, I guess. like, And m more power to them, you know. I, I always say I'd rather, I'd rather love a movie that everyone hates than hate a movie everyone loves. But here it's hard to be positive. <laughs> it's hard to like that one. It's, it? it's hard to like this one. <laughs> Especially because we've seen, like we talked about this, we've there's so much greatness in the Palmas filmography that I was actually excited to revisit this one and be like, yes, this is an uncut gem. It's like, no, no. it's probably the worst movies made in the 2000s, like in that decade. Really? I prefer redacted. Uh, if, oh, but by the way, it just, it just reminded me what you just said. This film essentially killed off the Palmas career in Hollywood. Because he was brought back from France or wherever the hell he made Femme Fatale. He was just like, yeah, let's mm -hmm. make this happen. He made this. And it, I don't know whether this was like the producers just annoyed him so much. And he's just like, I'm done. I'm not making another film in Hollywood ever again, ever, ever. I'm going to make these great films in Europe. <laughs> just, I made three more. And it's mm -hmm. just... What yeah. a trilogy. So, this was largely funded uh in europe was it not like i think it's a lot uh, of potentially yes, but then, it's but mostly it's a, shot there yeah yeah but I, I don't know how it was funded because it, it is technically technically is it not a hollywood picture yeah it's bankrolled this universal yeah. pictures or that's just, uh, the universal Brothers. logo mm -hmm. so it's still opinion. yeah so it's studio no, production companies davis films millennium it's just i don't know it's an american studio yeah so With yeah french and german production so it's a bit of a co-production but yeah mm. so it's a bit odd but it kind of feels like this was the sort of nail in the coffin as in like okay and i i think it, the feeling was mutual as in like i'm done with you people because you butcher my work and then they were like we're done with you because you're clearly not doing what we're asking you to do mm. you know we we do this here like this is my final take this show is called uncut gems and the idea was to kind of dive into these films that are kind of just sort of like, oh yeah, well, remember that? No one remembers this. And then with the expectation that it's going to be great. Well, sometimes when you dive into the dumpster, you don't find a, you, you may not find a, a, a beautiful apple that someone discarded. You'll just find a whole lot of garbage and then you'll just end up covered in bin juice. That's what, <laughs> it's just, that's how I feel. <laughs> It's ready for a shower. It's just it's, oh, this movie is just bad. It's just bad, and this and it just pains me because um, 
I really like the Palmer stuff, and I really wished I could I could like it because it. But it's just there's so many things that are just wrong with this, just both as a narrative, as a, as a, as a script, the performances, even De Palma's direction feels like weirdly out of place and out of step uh, with 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 the narrative. It's just this film is just such a hot mess, and that it's a mess that I find it difficult to like. And I like I like liking messes. I like messy films, but this one is a mess I cannot get behind. <sighs> So I'll just leave it there. I'm just like we flogged this horse for long enough. <laughs> let's just uh, let's just go through this. So how about we just you know share our top three moments, <laughs> top three moments <laughs> from the Black Dahlia. Randy, what's your top three moments? All right, a few uh, honorable mentions to get things started. Uh, so there's a the slow motion boxing shot where Bucky's teeth, Josh Hart's Hart and its teeth go flying. And then they land on uh, the, the the game sheet, the match sheet. That was great. Great shot. I also like when there's a, a moment where uh, Aaron Ar- Eckhart is training in the gym and Hartnett and Johansson are talking outside the ring. He's very excited and, about being sparring a guy very seriously, right? Yes. And by <laughs> this honorable mention goes to that because he delivers one of the best left hooks I have ever seen. <laughs> Like a, I think it's just his, awesome. His just, sparring partner was like, "We're not supposed to be doing this seriously, <laughs> Jesus!" Like, and Hartnett and Eckhart, like they trained in boxing for four hours a day for seven months, apparently. Exactly. What for? Like, yeah. Okay. Why? <laughs> because they had that, money to burn. That's that, why. And it might have been a, made for a, a, a good sequence in an episode of a miniseries, uh, as opposed to this opening twenty mm-hmm. minutes. Another honorable mention to Kevin Dunn, great actor. I've seen a lot of his films over the last uh, month or so and going through Ivan Reitman's work, and he was also in Snake Eyes. Uh, and here he's Elizabeth Short's dad, and uh, they go in to interview him. And he's very much playing a character against type, and I love that he's sort of a snarly, and basically what I think he's doing is he's doing a Dennis Franz impression, and I think it's lovely. So he's just sort of a, a snotty uh, type of interviewee. As, so that I'll just throw that out there. I like Kevin Dunn a lot. Um, so my my top three officially, the POV shot whenever uh, Hartnett meets the family and it's all through his uh, perspective. I like the craft. I don't like this family. I don't necessarily like the performances that are given, uh, but I, I do like the choreography. I do like the POV uh, moment. Uh, number two, I like the coverage of the autopsy where it starts with the cameras really high and overhead shot. So the autopsy of uh, Elizabeth Short's body was, you know, was basically her body was uh, torn apart, bisected into two or three pieces. And it's all kept intentionally sort of shadowy. So you don't really mm-hmm. get a good look at that. I, I sort of like that. And then the camera in this one shot starts from the high shot and then comes down the side and sort of looks under everyone up at the uh, the corner. I like that. And the guy has a sort of a, a nifty accent going on too. So I, I like the delivery of the information there. That was a good moment. And my absolute... Number one is Mia Kirshner and every moment of her screen time in those screen tests. 
She is the uneaten, unscathed apple in the dumpster that we were diving for. Yes. <laughs> Nick, these are top threes. Honorable mention to the man who laughs because it shows me the man who laughs. I was like, oh, I'd rather be watching that film again. I'd rather than Black Dahlia. Uh, number three, I really like the, the one of very few moments of violence in the film. Just William Finley smashing his head on this fountain. I don't know thing inside the building. I don't know what it is. Just statue, whatever it is. Just smashes his head. It's very graphic. It's, it's cool. It's like, oh, ooh, I'm feeling something. It's 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 visceral. Exactly half a second. For half a second, yes. Better than being cut, you know. Having seen the rest of the movie, probably would have been cut in another instance. Um, second favorite moment. There is a scene early on when Josh Hartnett goes to visit his father and he's just shooting at pigeons from the window. <laughs> It gives him this plane as well. Yes, that scene was. Go, uh, I don't know, like poor guy he was. He was very ill, but it made me laugh. So it's like this is. I remember that moment. <laughs> I, 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 I was like, I'm watching. It, I was like, don't forget about that scene. It's been two days. I haven't forgotten. And lastly, easy. I have to agree with you, Randy. Just every, every the audition, the tapes of the Black Dahlia, Mia Krishner, impeccable. Like especially the one where she where she was crying before shooting started and she's just kind of recomposing herself. It shows you so much of what's behind her without being explicit. Like that that's the palma for me. <laughs> a bit like it's obviously nuanced. <laughs> it's an oxymoron. It's just uh, contradicting itself and it's beautiful. Love it. <sighs> Okay, honorable mention to the crane shot with the body reveal. It's just one of the sort of big flashy moments. It's kind of functional. <laughs> and it kind of just reminds me, oh yeah, I'm watching a De Palma film for some reason, but, but it's kind of like, yeah, at least it's, you know. And <laughs> it I was just sex. thinking, my, like, this, when, the, when the camera just lifts the lifts off, I just feel like, is this like Tenebrae? It's just like, or is this going to be a crane shot for no fucking reason? <laughs> it's just traumatized. Manowina, Manowina, Manowina. <laughs> <laughs> For some reason, I've, I've, when when in the soundtrack from Tenebrae, I think the guy sings Phenomena. <laughs> Phenomena, Phenomena. I don't think there's any guy singing. No, the, no, this is a guy singing. Like he has a voice box. He... Oh, in Tenebrae. Yes. Like, go on YouTube and look at how Goblin performs the song. There's a guy singing this. I think it's just a very weird that's, instrument. That's that's going through a through a, through a voice box. <clears throat> so yeah, there's something new every day on this podcast. And, and by the way, I, I figured out. I think I figured out why this is a tangent. Why, why I thought that the Tenebrae shot is from Psycho because I think I, for some reason I've I've seen this before and it's in Mission to Mars as well. Yeah. In the What's his face? Oh. Gary Sinise? Well, Gary Sinise, no. Oh, no, no, no. Why am I always forgetting his name? Boogie Nights. Yes. Randy, help us. No. Jesus, why am I blanking? Who's the crossover Don Cheadle. Don Cheadle, yes. Don Cheadle. Don Cheadle. When he just bends over and Don Cheadle's behind him, like... 
<laughs> so that's yeah, the tenebration. Uh, so I feel that's why. Anyway, so <laughs> anyway, Black Dahlia top three moments. So the Elizabeth Short reels when she bullshits her about her her accents, and then she does Scarlett O'Hara, and then mm. and that's kind of tied with another scene of her reels when she's asked to, by the Palmer to be sad, and she just look gives him a very interesting look. It's a good scene. I really like it. Uh, the image of the dead woman with her mouth just in the corner of the frame. So when they find the body, you see Josh Hartnett's kind of in the in the f- sort of like bottom right right hand corner of the frame, and then in just about the corner of the frame, there's dead dead body with the sort of sliced face sliced open, and then there's a crow somewhere in there for, for exactly half a second. But I just feel like this is this is the kind of suggestive stuff that you just okay. Well, in a in a 1940s noir, you would never see. At all, it will be described like like how, like most of it is described from the point of view of the victim, almost. Just wow, there she's split in the middle. See, you know. <laughs> yeah. But by the way, there's this guy who says something like, "Maybe I do, maybe I don't." As well in this film, I've just thought about uh, Ice T and R X Mas. The memories. Uh, and I'll 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 leave off on the fall in the stairwell that takes like a day and a half. But it kind of just reminded me of the Odessa step sequence in the, in the Untouchables, and it's kind of like the flashiest moment in the the whole fight is just very. Again, he slows down time. He he savors this this thing. Only there's zero violence in there. It's just just like oh, he gets cut in the face a little bit, and just like Meh! and then there's half a second of something happening on at the fountain. This should have really been like someone's just impaled on this fountain, and this fountain turns red, just starts flowing red. I'm making a better movie already. <laughs> uh, yeah, but but this is this is like the highlight of the film, and, and if this is a highlight that I can immediately correct with just mm. my own stupid imagination, then you know, it tells you how bad this film is. So this is gonna be interesting. Oh yeah, also honorable mention for the drunk wife eating dinner and getting pissed off at the potato as well. <laughs> She's just like she can't, I can't cut the potato. Great, and then she goes on like like a sort of monologue about how she hates her husband. It's great. Uh, bottom threes, <clears throat> Randy. So I have some mini uglies here, and largely they fall into the camp of like why, <laughs> why am I seeing this? Yep. For there is a moment in here. It's not a bad moment per se, where the police station shakes in an earthquake. Why? That's why the, is... that's again like an Elroy moment, right? Yeah, we're in the lay and there are earthquakes, and all they do is just like, we're done here. Okay, good. Yeah. Why? What? What is that? Because it's uh, LA. It's just. Yeah. <laughs> just... So Rose McGowan is in this, and her accent. Why? Why does she need an accent? What? Why am I? Why am I listening to this? It is like not James very Cromwell good. again. Because yep. Elroy says she has an accent, and everyone's like, "Well, we need to please James." So, <laughs> you know, what? I'm scared. Of, there might be something to that. <laughs> it feels like that, doesn't it? Just, why are these people yeah. these things in here? Because like James Elroy, he's he's like he will send people over to your house and they will break your legs. <laughs> uh, so here's a little bit of a silly one, but the the love scene whenever uh, Kay Scarlett Johansson and Josh Hartnett <sighs> the table. That, well, firstly, he rips her blouse off, and it's like, oh, it's a, like it's a nice blouse, and there go the buttons. It's such a romantic. It just yeah. goes, 
oh, you know, where's the blouse? Well, I'm never going to find these buttons. And, and this is just, this is shortly after um, Eckhart has died. And, you know, that's a nice blouse. Ruined right there. So then, and he had gone over to have a special Wednesday night because that was the tradition. Josh Hartnett would go over on Wednesday nights and and uh, Scarlett Johansson would make a nice meal. So she, the nice meal's on the table, table set, just shove it all off, break the dishes. Like, anyway. Didn't even take a bite. There's, yes. Oh, he did take a them. bite. <laughs> yeah, or something. Did, or did she take a bite? No one knows. Because <laughs> it's, it's a very tame film. Not a single yeah. pubic hair in the De Palma film is a disaster. Yeah. <laughs> why? 20 years after Body Double. Why are we ruining all the good China as well? Anyway. <laughs> Okay, so more seriously, the dinner scene at Hilary Swank's parents' house. With the potato? <laughs> With the potato, but I'm just going to say the whole scene, it's awkward as hell, and there's not a single actor at the table strong enough to anchor that. It's just a clumsy mess. So the, the whole thing was silly. And there's a certain element of, like, why are we doing this anyway? Anyway, nope. <laughs> this should have been awkward, right? Number two, um, Hillary Swank and Josh Hartnett, shortly after the aforementioned scene, uh, they're having sex, and she makes another confession, which is one of those noir mystery strands that should be meaningful but isn't. But she says, well, I had sex with uh, Elizabeth Short because I always wanted to have sex with someone who looked like me. <laughs> okay fine <laughs> whatever but after she makes that declaration josh hartnett continues for another two or three seconds just to caress hillary swank's shoulder and then he gets up and looks at her angrily and says you slut <laughs> so, and storms he's a, out he's a slow thinker <laughs> and, I, I think and he, you know what? He, he thought it was a joke that's what i saw <laughs> well maybe you're right or maybe it is you know, he was, was talking earlier because he's like what how do she says, I tried to have sex with someone who looks at me, but she's a lady. How did two ladies get in? Like, nah, how you're pulling this, my leg. Like, how did they, you know, how did, how did they, did they just, like, what do what they do? They? Yeah. <laughs> and then just, like, he probably just processes, like, oh, so. And it just came out as anger, maybe, <laughs> maybe. And that could get back to, he's, very he's a innocent. bit punch drunk and just, you know, yeah, not the strongest cog sure. cognitive sort. Okay, and number one, the finale scene, the confession scene, and Fiona Shaw in general as Ramona Lynn Scott, absolutely cringeworthy performance. And like I said, she rushes into the scene with an entrance, which is precisely Liar. Carol Kane from <laughs> Princess Bride. Liar! Liar! So, so yeah, the, the husband should have said, go away, you witch. <laughs> But anyway, <laughs> terrible. It had, had an energy of like Edward Scissorhands. <laughs> it's very theatrical oh. moment. <laughs> oh, great stuff! I like I like these moments. Nick, tell me your bottoms. Show us your bottom. Yeah, I I feel bad having Fiona Shaw on my list <laughs> because you know she's kind of like Robert Pattinson in The King. Completely different wavelength than anyone else, but at least it's different and it's something. 
Um, but she's there because it's how, how can you not have her? Unfortunately, just kind of like why? What was the thought process behind all of it? And just even the way she she shoots herself out of the fight, she's just kind of like smile. Whoops! It's a very whoopsy face. Um, second, during the dinner, like, okay, the dinner scene cringy, but the sister, just the character of the sister as a whole, was very crass. Oh, there was she, a sister. She, yes, she, she <laughs> makes the pornographic drawing. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's a weird moment. Just drawing like, doggy style cartoons and passing them across the table. And the and the dad's kinda like she's an artist. I'm like, what yeah. kind like it makes this sort of letter faced family kinda look positively just, you know, regular. The the dad says she's the genius in the family. That's, yeah, that's, they make the statement. Like, oh, she's the prima. She's the genius of the family. It's like I, I, I cannot. If that's this, if that's the bar, if that's where the bar is, I mean, we should be kind of just glad that Hilary Swank's character doesn't shit herself like every five minutes just because. <laughs> Let's just say, like, in a scene full of like, why are we here? Why is this scene happening? That's the most like, why is this? Ha- why is this a thing? What's what's this? Does this imply? What does this imply? What's what does it lead to? Nothing. Anyway, um, and lastly, I mean, I wanted to say, like, Hilary Swank's accent sucks, but whatever. Just the, the painting of a man who laughs. Who <laughs> <laughs> looks like pop art. It's like, what? Why would you... It's, it's for... Like, it's part of the, of the bigger issues of the movie where it's kind of, like, forcing those connections in a way that they're supposed to make you go, oh, now I get it. But it only makes you scratch your head. It's like, what? Like the logistically, the technical is like, why? Why is why is it there? Why? Eh. Anyway, because it's so are... much fun, Jen. To get it. <laughs> no, but Says in all honesty, five percent of users who actually like this movie. <laughs> five bucks says this is a James Elroy thing. Because <laughs> there's probably a, there's works a, in the novel though. I can there's see a it. there's a weird painting in in L.A. Confidential as well that they just pay attention to as well for some reason. There's this like four people having an orgy in, in David Strathiron's house and just like, you know, and just like gives a look, it's just like, this is what I do, like porn. Whatever. Okay, my turn? Is it my turn? Yes, it's your turn. <sighs> okay, dishonorable mention. I can't believe we haven't mentioned this. The audacity to stuff a dog in a <laughs> pose of it delivering a newspaper all happy and shit. <laughs> I'm like... It's it's supposed to, again. This is like a James Elroy Jerkoff fest. Again, <laughs> it feels like this is something that would be would have been like a quirky moment from a novel that kind of gives depth to a character because he wants he was so happy with the news that the dog delivered that he shot the dog. I'm like, what kind of a sociopath is it? And it's just, but in here it's kind of like an again like it's like a drop in an, in a notion of superfluous data. This is a funny moment. <laughs> Okay. The, the, <laughs> I guess. The, the guess, I suppose. Okay. We you've all mentioned this. The big review when the drunk wife comes out of nowhere like gives a shit. This <laughs> is really uh, Enter stage left. Enter stage. Yeah, exactly. Liar. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> it's kind of like they feel like you're Jeremy Clarkson. Oh no. Anyway. Um <laughs> uh, when Aaron Eckhart loses his shit over the photos at the dinner table, like out of nowhere, she just tries to bring dinner and then she has these photos everywhere. It's just like she she probably told him, it's like, you know, 
I mean, this is what this is what I'm doing because I, normally I would probably just I I don't really feel like I want to kind of re regurgitate what I've already kind of just said about the film's problems. So I'm just trying to look for funny moments that make no sense to me. But yeah, so so that one he loses his shit like he's just like like out of nowhere. I mean, maybe it was just percolating. It was just like umpteenth time she tried to uh, put the soup over top of his <laughs> photos, and then yeah, I don't know. That's them. He's just and the way he's like Aaron Eckhart, the way he speaks, his accent bothers me. By the way, he feels like he's sped up a little bit. He he's like iced tea and RX was just me. <laughs> he's he's like the detective in the the fat detective in Angel Heart. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's just caricature. Uh, but then okay, here's here's the moment that we haven't mentioned when Scarlett Johansson. Um, and Josh Hartnett, they have a they have an argument. I can't remember over what because I can't remember anything about this film. But then she says, something's burning. And they run downstairs. She opens the oven. She looks and then she just she just, you know, she just waves. And closes the oven. That well, you know, that's it. We're done here. Like it's let's continue cooking. Like she doesn't even turn anything off. <laughs> that's a that's a pro move. That's like a that's... life hack. If you don't want the food to burn, you just open the oven just wave a little bit of air into it just yeah, and, that's it. and that's it and then is this in the same scene where they just turn around and then just have sex on the kitchen table no because dinner was ready in that scene okay yeah Nothing's so see, yeah i don't i don't remember this is after this... he he found the money because she cut her foot <laughs> oh right yes of course i don't even remember this scene to yeah, be there's some, like yeah there's some money just like who gives a shit <laughs> moments are just blending into uh, one another and just merging into nothingness there it is we've done it i think we've uh we've um we've ruined brand the palmer enough i think so you know the black dahlia <laughs> you can you can if you want to you can rent it or purchase it in the u.s or like everywhere Every, I'm not sure. Can you actually see it in Italy somewhere? It's on Prime. It is on it's Amazon Prime. Everything. Without subtitles. <laughs> Everything's on Prime. Uh, because in the UK, it's like unavailable. I had to go and spend one pound to get a d- DVD, which, by the way, it doesn't have a Blu-ray release, at least where I live. So <laughs> so we can buy it on DVD secondhand because it's out of print. Um, so that just tells you. Cherish so, yeah. it. So yeah, so if you really want to, you can probably go and find a way to watch it, and then you know, but go, watch at your own risk, <laughs> at your own peril. So that, I think that's it. Let's just say this is it for this episode of the Uncut Gems podcast. So where can we find you all on social media, Randy? Where can we find you? You can find me on Twitter at Randy Burrows. You can find me on Letterbox at Bradge Seven, and you can find some of the things that i write on clapperltd.co.uk and fun fact by the way because we're recording this before the oscars so randy's randy's oscar piece has just about hit the uh, interwebs because i've gotten a notification on twitter so there's that (laughs) so finally because i uh, had to go and pester someone on trello and say can we please make sure this comes out (laughs) uh anyway uh nick where can we find you you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at NikkiDar97, and there you can find the main link tree, link tree forward slash enjoy the movies, where you can find links to all of my films, short films, videos on YouTube and Vimeo, as well as my writing for Clapper and a bunch of other places. And also be sure to tune in the Death by Adaptation podcast, a new episode dropped last week, where we talked about Inherent Vice.
fabulous and then you know and or you can just stay tuned to this show which is basically db uh, death by adaptation adjacent at this point <laughs> if i had the time to read the books that we're watching the movies for we're, I would. We're, comp- we're comparing books with well films with books we haven't read <laughs> that's how the pros do it <laughs> coming down on the author pretty hard yeah yeah, it's, it's just, all James Elroy, man. It's, it's all his fault. It's all speculation, so you know, don't take us too seriously. It's all satirical, anyway. Anyway, so you can follow me as well. Uh, talk about film on Twitter as Jakob Flash on Letterbox. You can read my stuff on clapperltd.co.uk and on flashonfilm.com. <clears throat> you can also follow the show uh, at Anka James Pod everywhere. So Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook is where you can find us. And then you can also find us on our website, uncutgemspodcast.com, so where, where you will be able to browse through all the stuff we've done. And you'll also find that there are bonus shows, shows available through our Patreon. Over at patreon.com slash uncutgemspod, three bucks a month gets you a whole lot of extra stuff that you can listen to like bonus tie-ins retrospectives and our david lynch marathon that we're doing over the course of 2022 also feel free to uh uh you know get in touch send us an email uncadjamespod.gmail.com is the place or uncadjamespodcast.com slash contact so you know you can you can do it that way and um you know so feel free to do that if you want to support us in some in some other way instead of just subscribing to our patreon you can always still buy us a coffee at coffee.com slash uncutgemspod um or if you don't feel like paying up for support you can still leave us a review i don't know wherever you listen to your podcast you can leave us a rating and a review uh because it, it helps a lot unless as long as it's not a one-star review so you just put it that way so, <laughs> so, so there's that anyway so i think that's it from us for 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 this week and um I think with that we're closing our De Palma March four, de- four decades of De Palma marathon, and then next week what we'll be doing? Oh, what are we doing? Red Dawn Invasion USA. Right, yes, of course, we're doing a double bill of Red Dawn and Invasion USA, the one with Chuck Norris, <laughs> 1985, because there's a 1953 film as well, which I might as well Classic. watch. Classic, <laughs> because it's not very long; it's like barely an hour, I think. Uh, so yeah, so we're doing a double bill of the, Ru- the Ruskies invading, or it's, um, it's very timely for some reason. And then, if, if believe it or not, this this has been on the roster for like I don't know half a year. Yes, it's an interesting <laughs> so, coincidence. <laughs> so coincidentally, you know, this this is what happened. Uh, so yeah, stay tuned for that. That's that's happening next week. And then in the meantime, I hope you have a fabulous day, and we'll see you next week. Ta-da! Bye.